0: Hi everyone, I'm Yasin Scully and welcome to this new season of Entrepreneur Talks, Station Lev's official podcast. Twice per month, we will offer an exclusive conversation with one great entrepreneur or personality. Together, we will analyze the keys to their success and understand the different struggles our guests faced. They will share their tips and the ones they wish they had before launching their own company. Don't hesitate to subscribe, share, and leave a five-star review so we can help democratize entrepreneurship. Enough talking, now sit tight and listen carefully because you're about to get inspired. Hi everyone I'm Yassine and welcome to Station F the world's biggest startup campus. Uh, today we're back for a new episode of Entrepreneur Talks and I'm happy very very happy because today we're going to talk about cell based meat. How are you Nicolas? Nicolas or
1: Nicola? <laughs> Both work. Uh, I'm fine with Nicholas. Um, I'm very well. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Uh,
0: thanks for coming. So we are in Station F physically, uh, which is great. Uh, at the beginning of the spring, but anyways, can you um, present yourself in a in few sentences, please?
1: Sure. So I'm Nicholas, founder and CEO of a food tech company based in Paris called Gourmet. So we are uh, reimagining the way meat is produced. We essentially produce it directly by cultivating animal cells instead of entire animals. Mm-hmm. Uh, by doing so, we create a much more efficient production method. So that's the whole point. Uh, and we're starting with a very um, complex product that is foie gras. So we are working on a cultivated foie gras product. Uh, and my background is in political sciences, social sciences, marketing. hmm um, <laughs> before starting Gourmet, I spent a few years in many different uh, environments Th- that's uh, why
0: I'm laughing like, yeah. <laughs> you went from so many industries <laughs> to others uh, Actually, yeah,
1: from Greenpeace to L'Oréal that's uh, a weird move uh, I, I, can't I would say bit. you're
0: coming back <laughs> on like, let's say climate tech in general so more Greenpeace <laughs> than L'Oréal but either way uh, we'll get back on your background I just want to know one thing you said it first you said foie gras I said it before how do you call that in English is it like fat liver or like seriously and that's a question I would like to ask you uh, right after when we'll discuss also the products that you launched but yeah is the foie gras something known uh, worldwide or is it just in France no
1: actually it's quite popular uh, across the world Um, very popular in Asia so Japan is a massive market for foie gras, really? China is also picking up, obviously in the US, but I'm sure we'll come back to that. Mm-hmm. The the problem with the product is that it is so controversial that some countries are actually prohibiting banning the product. So okay. in California, for instance, you cannot buy foie gras anymore. Uh, is
0: the same as cheese?
1: Um,
0: you know pasteurized pasteurized it's not for I the same know. reasons okay but
1: it's true that for some products but usually for for this product it's mostly around safety okay uh, for foie gras it's really about the way it's produced so okay. regulators are not happy with the force feeding phase which also more and more consumers are not comfortable with mm-hmm. and that has led to a few bans in in various regions
0: so like um ducks and Gooses were uh, yeah. The market is mostly duck. Yeah, okay. uh, you have some goose foie gras, but it's more niche. Yeah, it's more made like for the Canada goose and all porkers.
1: Exactly. And to come back to, to your to your question, <laughs> so you, you would say, I mean, if if you wanted to describe what foie gras is, you would potentially say fatty liver, but if you would just refer to the product. To an American audience or even Asian audience, you would say foie gras with your best French accent.
0: Excellent. As champagne and, exactly. and baguette and rendezvous. Yeah, everyone, just so you know, we learn English, but all those words are French. Uh, <laughs> that was True. just like just to mention <laughs> it. Um, quick question. Can you just tell us how many employees do you have when was Gourmet created? Um, how much millions did you raise? And um, yeah, like just to have a little overview of what you have achieved so far. Sure. But definitely, we will discuss also about the the, the long term vision and the and the future. Very bright, I hope for for Gourmet.
1: Thank you. Um, we are roughly fifty people at the moment. Mm-hmm. We started company in 2019, uh, mid 2019. Um, great timing. Great timing. Yeah, actually. Uh, mid,
0: um, okay, so like a year before uh, before COVID.
1: Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Uh, a few months before Covid, uh, it was the year also that Beyond Meat, one of our main inspirations, was uh, going public. So also it was okay. a, a very important week for the whole category. Uh, we started in, in Genopol, which is um, the largest French bio cluster for, for biotech company. Okay. Uh, many companies kind of were born there. Insect, Insect, the famous uh, insect manufacturer in France, mm-hmm. they were also, also starting there. So we started now in 2019. Um, on the fundraising side, uh, we are at the Series A stage. Uh, we've raised above 60 million euros.
0: Last one was in uh, October 2022. I mean, Last announced. one was
1: announced October 2022. We closed it actually in June 2022. Okay. So right on time uh, was not fully intentional, but we feel very fortunate about the timing for this one. Okay. Uh, Why
0: do you say it was not intentional? Like
1: um, well, I mean, we, we were not expecting the climate to, you know, get that worse. Uh, okay. in the next f- when we started, it was like October, November 2021, where we started really reflecting and building the material for the next fundraise. Uh, we we felt that it was not as easy to raise as a few months before that, but we were not expecting such a dramatic turn down and, and change in the environment. So, uh, so, but so you would
0: say, yeah, the, like the environmental context uh, helped like I would say, the the, the the mass population, the public, to be more um, receptive to your value proposition, you would say?
1: For sure, uh, for sure, for sure. Um, actually, if we come back to the numbers, um, the single most effective lever that you have as an individual to, to make your impact better is actually food. Uh, we often talk about energy, but as an individual, food is really the single uh, most effective driver for climate change, for a better impact. Uh, and actually, among food, meat... Uh, and w- and your relationship with meat mm-hmm. is the area where you can improve your, your impact a lot can so you tell
0: us I don't know <laughs> I haven't asked you before I'm sorry so just so everyone knows uh, I most of well every time I discuss uh, about the questions because I want you also to not feel <laughs> trapped or whatever no I just have one question I don't know how uh, open and, and transparent you can be but can you share uh, you know the, the, the numbers um, of sales if you have like, I don't know when you started commercializing.
1: That's a good question, because this, the answer is very simple, is zero. Okay, I knew uh, it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> So when is it uh, for the market launch?
1: Yeah, that's, a, that's also a good one. Um, maybe just some context about that. When yeah. we talk about foie gras or meat or food in general, mm. it might not seem as high tech as what it could be, but actually we are a food tech company. But behind the scene, we are a deep tech company. So we are working on very deep science, deep biology deep food science. Mm -hmm. So as most of our peers in the deep tech environment, we have multiple years of R&D before being even able to launch uh, a product. So we started in 2019 uh, and we're working at full speed to get our product to the market by the end of next year okay uh, early 2025 i'm i'm giving you a, a wide range uh, for a simple reason we don't have full control on that because mm-hmm. we operate on a highly regulated market and before we can actually push our product to the consumers we need to get what's called regulatory approvals in europe it's called the novel food so we need you need to go through uh, a very complex important uh, and also long process engaging with the food agencies the food safety agencies mm-hmm. Uh, and essentially showing full transparency on how your product is produced uh, to ensure safety for the consumers. So, because this process can take between eight and Y months, we cannot really commit on a very precise uh, launch date. But as we get closer to market, things will get more clear.
0: You're optimistic.
1: For sure. Uh, not <laughs> later than three weeks ago, we have seen one of the key players in the U.S. in our field, so another mm-hmm. cultivated meat company getting an approval uh, in the US or actually getting half of the approval. So uh, from the Food uh, and Drug Administration in the US saying that, yeah, what your guys are doing seems safe uh, mm-hmm. and therefore we don't have further question to you and we open the route to market. So we have now precedent actually since 2020, you can actually buy, already buy cell based meat product in Singapore. Singapore is the first country that has authorized Uh, these products so yeah it's it's getting there it's just it requires a lot of of work a lot of innovation Mm -hmm. Uh, it's essentially the creation of a new supply chain of a new industry it's really starting from scratch and just retreating how meat is produced so it takes time
0: and we will discuss about those uh, new alternatives because um well so you explained it's cell based uh but we also have like I think most of us know uh, the plant-based meat, uh, so you, you mentioned it, uh, I don't remember, being beyond, beyond Meat meats, or yes. Impossible Foods, mm-hmm. uh, but we have many others in France, uh, uh, uh Happy Voir, Oumiami, La Vie which is the same in English, la vie. Um, so anyways, coming back to one thing that is, I guess, one of the most important thing in this podcast is trying to understand how you got from zero to one. And you said it before, you had like several experiences. Um, I'm just going to say one thing is that you went from big corporation to an association Uh, so we talk about L'Oréal then you went to I don't know if it was before or after but uh, Greenpeace Uh, I'm pretty sure then you went and you spent quite some time at Holly Dog and then you created your own company in a field that has (laughs) no common link with everything else apart maybe from um, uh, Greenpeace so my question, simple question is actually there are two, why and how Mm -hmm. why so, what was happening in your mind, and how did you get from a simple? I'm not going to say simple because, like, I'm pretty sure we have a lot of listeners that are employees, but basically being in a company in an adventure mm-hmm. and having the will to create your own adventure.
1: Yeah, that's a good question. Um, and you have two minutes. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Take your time. <laughs> no, no, I can be very quick on that. Um, essentially, just a few words about my personal journey. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was a student, I got very, very fascinated by the way animals were treated uh, for meat production and its impact on the environment. So that was a topic that actually got into me at a very early age. And I knew that I wanted to do something big on that front, but I didn't really know why. Uh, honestly, I'm, I don't really identify myself as the typical entrepreneur like you know, the the, the 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 big Ivy uh, League university drop off where you you know you you know that you want to build your company and at 22 you have already built five companies and okay. and you have been yes. selling stuff since a very young age so I'm not really that type of entrepreneur it took me time to go into that journey mm-hmm. uh, and actually I wanted first to to learn so I I did um, a marketing degree. Uh, when I picked L'Oréal as as one of my first companies, it was really about learning. Uh, I was not particularly fascinated with the cosmetic industry myself, but I felt that it was really a, a very good school, specifically okay. for marketing, because I felt right away that marketing was a very effective tool to change behaviors and mm-hmm. to actually get to market products in general. But if you use the rules to bring to market products that were made in a in a in an ethical way, in a sustainable way you better know the rules and you better know how marketing works to make these products uh, as effective as the less uh, ethical products. Mm-hmm. So I used these few years mostly as a learning uh, phase for me. Um, I had discovered just before, as you mentioned, the nonprofit set tour. So I spent a few uh, months, years at Greenpeace. Um, at this time, I really discovered something about myself that I didn't feel like an activist. That was not for me. Uh, that was not the way I wanted to have an impact. Uh, so what was, were you doing there? Uh, I was well. It was in the in the communication slash marketing department, and we we're essentially um, sharing all the work that Dreampeace was doing to our subscribers, to our supporters. So I was writing stories about the the amazing missions that Dreampeace is on too, and. And, and the work was really fascinating, but I, I just didn't feel that uh, it was for me to be an activist. For instance, even on a, from a diet standpoint, mm-hmm. I tried to be a vegan or a vegetarian and it didn't really stick on me. That was me. one of my questions. Um, okay.
0: so you're not, n- neither vegan nor vegetarian. Well, you would consider yourself as a
1: flexitarian? Exactly, What do yeah, call it? Completely. I mean, if I'm honest, I'm a flexitarian because I'm, I'm a conscious uh, animal product eater. So I'm... I'm always feeling some sort of guilt when I eat mm-hmm. animal product, or at least some sort of, 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 let's say, awareness, consciousness about what I do. It's not just, you know, an innocent behavior, mm-hmm. uh, but I also know that I, I cannot stop doing that because it's too good, it's too easy, it's too convenient, so for, for many reasons. So I also identified myself as one of my first potential customers, like, you know, people who are mindful and aware of the impact of their consumption of meat but who cannot really stop eating that because, again, it's convenient, it's socially accepted, it's just the norm, it's just good, it's just tasty, it's just nutritious as well.
0: Mm-hmm. I think it's more like you said it, it's the norm. Like, I feel it's e- very complicated to change habits, you know. A bit, sorry, I was interrupting. You were telling us uh, no, no, how no you worries. got from... yeah. <laughs> Science Po to Greenpeace, to all those different experiences.
1: <laughs> Actually, yes. And coming back to yeah. my, my university years, um, I had spent then uh, about 18 months in South America on the ground working for a non-profit. so that was not Greenpeace, that was another one. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there, I think I really witnessed the, the impact of li- the livestock industry and conventional farming, specifically on the Amazon, because I was working in Bolivia for a few months uh, at an animal shelter a non-profit organization, and it was in the Amazon part of Bolivia where you could actually see firsthand deforestation and and all of that, that was triggered by our increasing appetite for meat. And, Mm -hmm. you know, we are deforesting to grow soy or other type of crops to feed the animals, and then the animals are fed and farmed in massive lands that are also uh, deforested, and then they are shipped to whatever places they are consumed. So it really struck me that uh, not only it was generating human misery, animal misery, but also environmental misery. Okay. Uh, And I knew that I wanted to just help humbly contribute to to fixing that. Uh, So that was the initial idea. I had no clue where to go. Uh, This is also why when you have no clue where to go, you usually go to a big consulting firm or another university or doing another degree. So for me, it was loyal. Okay. Uh, Where I wanted to learn, but without really knowing the direction. Is it? Is it? pushing back the real decision of of your life, you know,
0: like trying to know uh, what do I want to do about my career? Are you just buying some time?
1: Yeah, actually, I mean, yeah, coming back to that age, I was I was 22, 23. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you could say that. I was buying time. I was a bit, yeah, uncertain. I also kind of gave myself that stupid threshold of, you know, buy 30, uh, I wanted to figure out what to do with my life and in what direction to go. And uh, be
0: part of the Forbes 30 under 30. It <laughs> <Well,
1: that laughs> <laughs> didn't happen. Uh, I didn't apply. <laughs> Damn,
0: spoiler, you're over 30. <laughs> and I, I'm over 30. They might do it for the 40 under 40 or, or maybe they yeah, do I it already.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think they, they, there's already some stuff uh, <laughs> like that with uh, yeah higher age. Uh, but anyway, yeah, Um the goal for me was also to explore very different environments so mm. i at, at some point it became intentional for me that you know i had discovered be the non-profit sector i had spent a few years in the corporate world uh, the last environment that i hadn't touched was the startup one uh, and after so, 2 years at Loal, it became really um, you know i mean feeling the same way as many many employees from, from big corporations where you don't feel you have a huge impact you know you feel that you're just part of a, of a big sheep where mm-hmm. You know, it's not really tangible. Your your contribution, your own contribution. So I really identified with with this sort of feelings, and I wanted to to discover a, a smaller environment, a, a more I wouldn't say dynamic because L'Oréal is a very dynamic company on, on on many fronts. But I would say, yeah, something smaller, something uh, more tangible, something where I could build things myself.
0: HollyDog, Dog, right? And
1: and yeah, actually, that was that's when I I, I met with Julien, so the the co-founder and CEO of HollyDog. Dog. Um, Holiday is a is a is a marketplace for pet owners, so related to animals but not directly to you know to meat production in itself. Mm-hmm. But what I really enjoyed there is the ability to build uh, a team there because I was given the the opportunity to build the, the digital marketing team where uh, I was head of content marketing at the time. So was essentially leveraging massive social communities that the company had built on many different platforms. So that was around 20, 2015, 2016. Is it there that you build the media? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the media. Okay, yeah. I saw the numbers, quite yes. massive. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so we are quite successful uh, based this success on the massive community that were already in place and actually pushing meaningful content. So I, I really wanted not to share only, you know, cat and dog's funny videos, mm-hmm. but also really meaningful content, m- content about you know, the work of, of uh, organizations, of non-profit, the non-profit sector, also giving opportunity to speak to scientists, uh, to opinion leaders in animal welfare, in environmental uh, movement. So that was really how I felt satisfied about the impact I had. And then very logically, after two or three years became, you know, the, the will to go to the next level and actually build my own scene, not just one department of one company, but actually an entire uh, company. Mm-hmm. Uh specifically 2017 that was the year 2016 2017 where uh when the very very first cell-based meat companies kind of started uh at the usual place Silicon Valley um some also a bit in Europe and in Israel these are really the three main We're hubs one was
0: Insect in uh, in Paris sorry Insect in yes. uh, in Paris I mean Goranov uh, and all but... Yes. When was it? You know, when was it? When it was created?
1: When they started. I think they started about ten years ago now. So even before that, so okay.
0: 2012, 2013. You, you knew them by uh by this at this moment or?
1: I knew them, but uh, I think as someone trying to limit my impact uh, on 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 with my diet, mm-hmm. uh, but not being able to become a full vegetarian or vegan, um, the first introduction to this product was mostly the the Beyond meat. Yeah, b 2 uh, basically. Exactly. yeah,
0: For consumers. I have like, so correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel that we understand like several things through your background. So basically, you had like something that strikes you when you were, uh, I think it was in studies, you said uh, at Sciences Po. Uh, And I don't know if it's environmental, uh, animal, uh, you know, it's very general. Uh, By the way, I feel, when were you
1: uh, a student uh, at Sciences Po? When was Uh, that? From... 2008 to 2013.
0: Like, seriously, it was not that mainstream. Like, people were looking at you like maybe you're weird or some stuff. That is true.
1: And actually, yeah, if I I can share a few words on that, um, I co founded there uh, at Sciences Po the first student organization on these questions on animal welfare and its impact on the environment and all that. And we were inviting philosophers, scientists to speak to the students. And there was Uh, only you. And (laughs) there were only, I would say, us. (laughs) Uh, Me, myself and I. Yeah. (laughs) And also, we are really like, you know, these topics were very overlooked and people are like, but it is not serious topics, Uh, you know, the way we treat animals, the impact on the environment. So yeah, it was not considered a serious issue at the time.
0: And when you are a student, you're 18, 20, even 23, uh, at the end of your master or whatever, you're just looking at, and that's so basically what I understood from your background is that you're looking at your professional career. How are you going to start? What can you anticipate? What is the next move so you can get the best company, etc., etc. And I felt that you still did it. You you were like. Correct me if I'm wrong, but if everyone, I feel that's curious also. If everyone likes it or want to go to a big corporation, there must be a reason why. So you went there, you said, okay, I was too limited to, like my impact overall was too limited. So then you did like a huge gap. Uh, no, it was after or before. Anyway, you did also associations, etc. My question is very simple. Can you tell us at what moment you realized that you can serve a good cause and make money out of it? So basically, I'm, um, Opposing two things in your background that I feel now is meeting is the passion, which is the cause that you want to serve, but I don't know if you want to be a millionaire, but I still believe that you want to earn some money and live a decent life at what moment uh association meets capitalism
1: boom <laughs> <laughs> that's a big one um
0: well, no, but ser- I, seriously no, like no it's, a,
1: it's a it's a it's a big and a good one um I think it's not so much what I want it for myself, but mostly how to combine, as you said, the good cause and the sustainable business, but sustainable from a financial point of view, not sustainable as in around the impact, but sustainable as in, is it viable? Uh, And I think I got introduced to this concept actually at L'Oreal because I didn't mention that, but when I got hired at L'Oreal at first, Mm -hmm. it was to work for the first organic brand that L'Oreal had acquired. Which is called Sanoflore, and it was really a, a bit of a bit of a small startup within the big company. It was a five-six people team. Uh, L'Oréal had just acquired this company, and it was about you know expanding its reach, rebranding the, the the brand, and actually making it a huge success, but without doing too many compromises on on the values because it was already an ethical brand, an organic brand, and it was for the first time uh, that I realized that the two could work together. Uh, obviously, on the ethical side, uh, I was not leading the charge. It was part of a massive group of L'Oréal. Mm-hmm. Um, but actually showing that on top of having environmental benefits, you could have also an economical success and a business success. That's really at L'Oréal that I got introduced to that to that merge. Okay. Uh, and I think that's also what got me very excited about that, because it having a massive commercial success if your product are made in, a, in an ethical way, in a good way, that simply means having a big impact. Uh, if you're just stuck in a niche of consumers that are buying your product because they're super sustainable, uh, you know, like clean label, uh, you, without using X or Y ingredients, mm. then, but they're not good, uh, then you're just limited to a very niche of activist consumers. Um, so you
0: find a product market fit, but on the niche. And that's very funny because... Um, so by the moment we're talking, you have not listened to it because it's not live yet, but it will be by the time we'll publish this podcast, we discussed about a notion of um, the product market fit and the environment market fit. So that's Frédéric Montagnon, uh, founder All of right. Ariani. and he, he discussed that with me, and, you know, uh, I feel it's also kind of the same vision that you have. It's like having this long-term picture uh, sometimes, and that's basically also a question I wanted to ask you is like, you're going to take 5 years of r&d you're not going to make any money uh i don't even know if you are paid and if you are correct me if i'm wrong you're definitely not the m- well most uh the biggest salary in your company um you might have earned even more money before that so you must have like this environmental environment market fit in in your head you know uh, willing to you know, to, to take some risk at on the short term to serve a better cause on the long term. Um, is that the case? And are you still, like, can you still live decently? <laughs> <I> <laughs> no, <guess> for sure. <laughs> I mean,
1: yes, uh, definitely cannot complain. We are being quite, um, I would say, competitive on the salary grid that we have. So yes, we are not the highest salary in the company, the co-founders. Uh, but that that being said, Uh, The level of funds that we managed to get uh, are also allowing us to live very decently. So we'll never complain on that front for sure. Uh, Although we started by, you know, like the the way many French entrepreneurs do. So you leave your previous company with a rupture conventionnelle and you leave off unemployment for a few months just to kickstart the company. So I've been through that. Uh, We are also extremely low salary for the phase two and phase three when we had secured uh, our, our, our fundings mm-hmm. the team uh, and all that we ov- always obviously prioritized hiring people that were better than us as being the founders we, and we we allowed ourselves to to be paid decently
0: but you could have been paid way more as you said in a consulting firm uh, at for your sure. age right no no for sure going very fast because this podcast uh, <laughs> is going out of my hands. But anyways, it means it's a great conversation. Uh, this is the moment where I'm going to ask a uh, little questions that I feel are very valuable, but maybe less pleasant for you, I don't know. <laughs> Simple question. What's your biggest fail, like the biggest failure that you had so far since 2019 at Gourmet's?
1: Mm. I think it relates to uh, my ability to learn fast, which I would say is the the number one uh, criteria for for what I'm what I am expecting from myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to learn as fast as possible because of the just the wide range of of topics and just essentially building a company is just about learning. I think there are some areas where um, I'm a bit disappointed not to have learned fast enough. Uh, and like what? Yeah, like what? That's a good question. I think it's really related to the to the transition uh, of becoming a, a food manufacturing company, going from R and D to manufacturing the product. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's uh, that's a transition uh, that we could have done a few months earlier. And where, as a founder, it's essentially your responsibility to always anticipate the next phase uh, and where the company is going to be in one, two years, three years, five years, ten years, whatever. Uh, and I think on that uh well the impact w- was limited it's not absolutely not a catastrophe but essentially i wish i we we had learned a bit faster to to do this transition in know in a faster fashion because all uh, and to, to speak a bit more concretely on that uh-huh. what it means is that we have a very very and a phenomenal r&d team uh, but at some point around 2021 we expanded the team toward another direction with not only amazing scientists and amazing PhDs and R&D people, mm-hmm. but also people from regulat- regulatory people from quality, uh, essentially people from conventional food companies. So that's in the conventional food companies, you have all these departments. Uh, you don't necessarily have that when you're an early stage deep tech company. And usually when you when you create all these new departments, it adds in new constraints, but it's Obviously. constraints that are just there for the good cause that are just essentially needed for you to become a real manufacturing, a real food company. Okay. Uh, and I think we could have done better in accelerating this transition.
0: What could have you... Uh, could you have done better? Like, you can see me coming miles away. <laughs> like, no, uh, just right before that, at what moment you realized that this... You were like, okay, this takes a bit too much time. Like, is it... um Something that is subjective or objective? Did you have like uh something to to compare with, or is it just in your head?
1: You mean the the pace, uh, the, the yeah, the, the pace and that? going
0: from R and D to manufacturing and this transition that you were telling us about.
1: No, I think it's because uh, at some point we had some blind spots. Okay. Coming from these new expertise that we didn't have in house, and we when we kind of plugged them in the company, it also reshaped a bit the way we operate. It also brought new questions. So you did not anticipate or prepared we enough not, for that? Yeah, exactly. That that would be, that's what I would call the main failure. Uh, it's essentially not having lifted all these blind spots and having lifted maybe, you know, 70% of that, 80% of that, but not entirely. Okay. And so it created some friction in the way the company operated. It was, yeah, really a, a big transition phase, a big sort of reality check. And so, that's now when I'm when I'm speaking to uh, biotech food biotech entrepreneurs starting their their company now. That's the the first feedback that I I, I try to give with them is like try to get a regulatory person in house or at least an advisor as early as possible because all these constraints from the real world will actually massively impact your R&D work and the science that you'll be building.
0: And is is. It- would a, what would have been a smart move, like would you have called some specialists in the industry, you know just having some calls and having some maybe new views and opinions on stuff you have not figured or considered?
1: yeah, honestly, at this point it's mostly about plugging this expertise to the company in a form on, on another, whether by building a team or by just hiring great consultants mm-hmm. but so it's knowledge yeah, it's knowledge that we maybe plugged I don't know like you know six months too late or this this sort of.
0: Okay, yeah. but as you said, not a catastrophe. Otherwise, we wouldn't be speaking. I mean, we would be speaking, but would be a postmortem, which I'm not, uh, which I don't um, wish you. Anyways, coming back to that, um, I just have another question on that. So, as you said, well, as we understood very clearly, you are not a deep tech. Uh, Uh, person profile but you rule a deep tech company and i would love to emphasize on the fact that you're a deep tech and not just a food tech as uh, i don't know uber eats or whatever i don't even know if that's called food tech but anyway you don't make deliveries you're uh during r&d and manufacturing of a kind of a new product simple question what do you think is (laughs) okay (laughs) (laughs) what were you Okay, I'm gonna try to not be rude. But what were, were you really bad at, but that you were able to improve on? Mm.
1: Um, <laughs> I think I was bad at everything when I started the company. Uh, specifically because it was my first company and our first company with my co-founders. Um, uh, all of them were first-time founders. Yeah, actually, I didn't okay. mention that enough. And and when you say like I'm non-technical co-founder of a highly technical company. You have a CTO. Uh, mm. Exactly. Uh, and it's, it's more than just having a CTO. It's actually having, obviously at the core of, of the company, this highly technical expertise that Someone is coming is from the co-founders. We uh, still
0: need to interact, you know, with people from R&Ds, engineers, yes. uh, labs people, stuff like this. And I believe that, I mean, we can even see it in the environmental, uh, the sector of startups. sorry. Uh, we often think that the developers, you know, developers and the CTO most of the time sit together and then you have the rest of the team. And I feel that for you, it's the opposite. You were like the the black shepherd in all the uh, the black, what is that?
1: I think so, yeah.
0: Black sheep, sorry. Uh,
1: The black sheep. The black sheep.
0: Uh, But yeah. So did you have like, uh, did you see any difficulties in that? And did you have to improve? I don't know if it's communication wise, management wise are just based on your personal knowledge on all this tech?
1: Um, Of course, so the the, the number one mission that I gave myself when we started this company with Antoine and Victor, it was essentially for me to learn as quick as possible um, the science, or at least I would say the basic of the science, so I could actually ask questions because the way I saw my role right from day one Mm -hmm. was in two parts. Uh, Number one, made sure that um, the science that we build is linked to the market. So, you know, when you start a a deep tech company uh, or in the deep tech environment in general, you can have two different approaches. Uh, One is successful, the other is not. Uh, The first one would be uh, tech push. So like you build an amazing complex technology, you know, in your garage, a a beautiful science, but there is no real market need uh, behind. And the third one would be the market pool. So you actually get insights from the market and sort and of reverse engineer mm-hmm. and build your technology. So I saw my, my role and, and honestly, it was not really my only duty because Antoine and Victor, my two co-founders, already had this sensitivity and they wanted to have a massive impact. So they knew that they were not here for the science alone, but they were here for an impactful science. Uh, but still, my m- part of my responsibilities are to question also the way we prioritize the science that we do. So it makes sense from a business standpoint and it actually has, um, uh, yeah, a sort of viability from financial uh, and economical uh, market uh, product perspective. Uh, number two, my role was actually to also ask the questions uh, and the, and the difficult questions. So we ensure that we are not, we wouldn't spend, you know, too much time actually on doing stuff that were just there for the beauty of the, of the science without having actually uh, a yeah, real sense, a real sense and, and the, and the concrete outcome.
0: Okay. Um, <laughs> what do you miss as being an employee? <laughs> 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 this one uh, I, I found it know. funny.
1: Holidays. I don't know. Because uh, <laughs>
0: uh, an <laughs> entrepreneur on holidays never rests.
1: No, yeah, actually, yeah, it's more about this, I think, this the theme of, of just, you know, you live and breath your, your company. So I live and breathe Gromé. It's always in the back or in the front of my mind. You dream about um, it. I dream about it. Um, you wake up. I worry about uh, it. Yeah. It's giving, you know, it's my bread and butter. It's giving me the highest level of joy, but also the highest level of worry, of mm-hmm. anxiety. So, yeah, um, if I had to pick something from, from my previous experiences that, that was quite enjoyable is this you know, ability to just go on-off.
0: Very clear. Uh, we said it before. So I wanted to ask you, like, how long does it take from R&D to manufacturing? But I think that we discussed that. But coming back on the product and the tech part and cell based meat, basically, um, why the foie gras? <laughs> or the fat liver, sorry for the joke, but no, seriously, like, yeah. wh- wh- why this product? Like, I I, I guess you, you studied, like, uh, the way, like, what kind of, you know, what we consume, how is it um, uh, cultivated, like, is it, like, the best thing that matched uh, all the criterias that you wanted to cover?
1: I think when you're trading a new category of product, And as a pioneer, because, well, we have multiple companies, but we're all pioneers in the sense that we are going to be the first one to launch cultivated meat product to the market. To create a new market. To create a new market. When you're in such a position, reflecting on the first product, which will be the real introduction to the world of this new category, is critical. So, coming you back to never also,
0: make a second first impression
1: exactly, so that's that that's the I whole love that. yeah. exactly. That's the whole uh, reflection that went through our minds uh, at the early stage at the initiation stage. Uh, and coming back to what I was saying about technological push versus market pull, we wanted a product where you had a real market need okay. for a new version. and actually foie gras because of the way it's produced, because of the bands because of a growing consumer base that is discontent with the way it's produced felt really like the first move, the first best move that we could do to introduce this new category of product because people are already searching for an alternative. So actually foie gras is a product that is going through an existential crisis where chefs are increasingly taking that off their menu, States, countries are increasingly banning, prohibiting the product. So, and because we are French, so we are very proud also of our culinary heritage. So if we want this product to sort of survive in the 21st century, mm-hmm. it needed to be updated. So, so you so, feel
0: that you're serving also the French legacy, the French culture?
1: Of course, that's so so gourmet at, at its core is, a, is a, um, a merge of biotechnology and culinary arts and gastronomic sciences. So it's really the two pillars. We are merging the two. Uh, and the two are actually deep sciences. So it's not only the, the biology part, but also the meat science, the food science is also a key part of what we do. Mm-hmm. And in that sense, we are all foodies, we are all lovers, and we want to pay a tribute to to you know to our, our, our legacy. And actually not only the French one, because we are we have eighteen nationalities in, in, in the company. Mm-hmm. So we are the crossroads of, of many many different culinary heritages. But anyway, coming back to Faga, um, it felt like really the, the most efficient way to introduce this new category of product to the world because people were sort of actively looking for a replacement, for, for, for an alternative. On top of that, um, it's a premium product and as any new industry, we will be starting small and expensive. So it's not like we're going to produce thousands of, of tons of meat I was in about Fortnite.
0: To, I was about to say it's a niche. I mean, I thought so, but also it's very... Uh seasonal like meaning you only consume that most of the time during end of the year um uh festivities i don't know <laughs> how to say yeah. um but okay so you explain it's a, it's a move and if i go a little deeper um and the whole point was not like to make to become basically you want to make quality instead of quantity at the beginning the exactly. question is is at some point the vision to become you know to serve kind of a product that would uh respond to a mass population needs and come on spoilers, what are the next products? And I'm pretty <laughs> sure that you cannot tell everything, but you can give us some hints. <laughs>
1: yeah, I will not be going into into heavy details at this point. Uh, apologies in advance. No, no worries. But yeah, so the long term <laughs> vision of Gourmet is actually to be able to provide delicious, nutritious and sustainable meat to the world. So we are fully aware that foie gras is really just the starting point. And I, I didn't mention that clearly, but Everything that we do on the biology part is not limited to one product or one species or one type of meat. Foie gras is essentially the first application of our bioproduction platform. Okay. Uh, so fundamentally, everything that we do is could give life to an infinite set of applications of products. Uh, what I can share with you now is <laughs> that being said, <laughs> the, so the second wave of product that we are working with are actually fibrous products, so like whole cut meat, so like fi- okay um piece of steaks or stuff like this in this style uh, in this style <laughs> in this direction. In this direction. That's what I did not share now. Uh, <laughs> foie gras is actually not not a very structured meat, so it's not fibres, you know, that you're eating. So you, it's not a muscle. So what, when you eat meat, you eat a muscle product. Mm-hmm. So that's the second wave of product that we are currently working with, uh, and obviously our take is that we are going from high value, premium product into high volumes commodity meats. But this will take time. It's a it's a new industry. Uh, we are going to be limited by the supply, by just the amount of meat that we can produce. So we felt also that it made sense to start with a niche product, with a premium product, where you could build a natural, mm-hmm. a healthy business right from day one and not lose money for six years before actually you know scaling enough so that you could have uh, a reasonable price point.
0: Thanks for your answer and answers. Uh, I could sense that if I had more time, I could squeeze you and get another clue. But uh, you're very lucky. We're running out of time. So a little disclosure that uh, most of the time we list three times the question that I'm able to ask so I would have loved to discuss more in uh, more in depth about the R&D, the communication uh and you know your views on the market and basically france versus europe uh because I feel that um uh, that's a market that correct me if I'm wrong but we're quite not too late uh, compared to the us exactly. um
1: we yep. have, I mean, as Gromé, we have we have we have one of the of the industry champions in in France. Uh, so uh, at this point, it's mostly I mean, it's a bit it's a bit boring to just you know, rank companies in terms of funding. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for deep tech companies, it still has a meaning because you are pre revenue for quite a long amount of time. Yeah. Uh, so on the funding side. Uh, because of our private investors, but also because of the support of the French public investment bank of BPE, who is also a big supporter of innovation in France, we are definitely on the podium of the of the of the m- the better positioned countries in the world.
0: But I would love to see more actors and you staying on the podium, obviously. But I guess that would sure. help and help your cause, but uh, like the whole environment slash uh, society. Anyways. I know this is time, but we're going to take 120 more seconds and counting from now. OK, let's go. I'm going to ask you very quick questions and you need to answer like, like this. OK, what's the best quality trait of an entrepreneur?
1: Um, being good with people and learning fast. Why? Uh, being good with people because otherwise you're just creating an environment where people are, are not unleashing their full potential. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's the opposite of what you want to do. And learning fast because, you know, just building your company is constantly reinventing yourself as an entrepreneur. So you need to update yourself constantly. A
0: board member that you wish to have uh, that is alive, dead, real or fictive? Mm. <laughs> Nothing. That's it. You know the answer, so someone I'm who
1: could actually, yeah, bring value while also being a role model for me, uh, I would call uh, Yvon Chouinard. So it's a very French name, but it's actually a, an American-Canadian entrepreneur, been very famous for founding Patagonia. So one of the key successes in the, in in, in uh, well, first in climbing equipment, and then became a, a massive sportswear uh, yeah. brand. Um, Created for his own needs at the beginning. Exactly.
0: Yeah. And actually, in
1: story. the '70s, he was just selling uh, climbing equipment, and he and came the idea of creating equipment that were not damaging the rocks, the mountains. So, right in his core DNA, making a business while actually getting products to the market that were good for for the environment, for the mm-hmm. for society in general. While, again, creating a massively successful business on top of that. So it's uh, a very, very strong inspiration for me. Uh, He also always refused to go public because he essentially said that, you know, once your company IPO, uh, you are stuck in the short term and it's very difficult to think long term. Mm -hmm. So on many fronts... You have constraints. You have constraints. So on on many fronts for all these states, uh, very strong inspiration. Drum roll
0: last question
1: what's the most underrated
0: advice that you, Nico or Nicolas, would Nicholas, would have liked to <laughs> to receive prior to uh, to funding gourmet
1: mm, I think mental health is at the core of the journey uh, so I would say get a therapist, get a coach, get you know get equipped for this journey. We're hearing this this sort of advice more and more, and that's good, but I think it's still a bit underrated. Uh, And number two, also in the same direction, find mentors. So ideally entrepreneurs who are maybe one, two or three years ahead of you and not only talk to them, uh, but also incentivize them, give them shares of the company, try to build a very strong ecosystem with interests fully aligned with your success, but with people that can really feel what you're going to go through and, and help.
0: So get uh, well surrounded and uh, first thing you said take care of yourself take people care of yourself. yes prevent instead of heal uh, I mean that's a French expression I don't know if that works in English but yeah, you, I think it you works. get me <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much Nicola thanks, um, thanks everyone that uh, listened to us until the end I hope uh, Nicola inspired you uh, and um, yeah just go every day on the website because one year from now we hope to see gourmet everywhere yep thank you again thanks again and uh, have a, a great day everyone and see you uh, talk to you uh, in two weeks for the next episode bye bye And that's a wrap. Thanks for listening until the end. If you have enjoyed this episode, don't hesitate to let us know by leaving a review and sharing this episode with three of your friends. We'll be back in two weeks. Until then, we wish you great success in your projects and do not forget, it's a marathon, not a sprint.